Good morning. Good morning. You all awake? No? <laughs> A few people that are awake. Uh, let me say that I have missed uh, standing here for the past few weeks. Um, got the opportunity to preach um, at another church a couple weeks ago, and then Rusty filled in for me, and, and uh, Dave filled in last week, and um, it's just something about uh, being home and something about uh, teaching you guys uh, God's Word. Um, so I, I hope that this morning is beneficial to you guys, and God uses it to, uh, to continue to sanctify your hearts um, and to change your life. Um, this, I, I want to always make sure as we sing songs that we don't just sing words um, and that we realize what we're singing. Um, when, when that chorus says, uh, um, I would live so that all might see, and he says, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Like, do we believe that? Do we realize that? Because if we did, we'd stop running back to ourselves and we'd start running back to Christ, right? Uh, I want to read to you some lyrics from a new song that uh, the band doesn't know, but hopefully we'll do here in the future. Um, it, the words go like this. Uh, it's by Keith Getty. If anybody knows who Keith Getty is, the words go like this. He says, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Verse 2 says, Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace we'll stand on your promises, and by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built, and the earth is filled with your glory. Um, when we approach God's word, um, the word is the only thing that comes with the promise to sanctify us. God's word, like Man's good words, our good thoughts, our good books, whatever, uh, don't come with the promise to sanctify us. God's word comes with the promise to sanctify us. Now, God's word can be communicated in other books, can be communicated from man, but the point is, is that it is these words that come with the promise to sanctify us. Uh, and it's these words that, even in the midst of a very difficult and oftentimes confusing book like Ecclesiastes, that these words come the promise to sanctify us. Um, we just need to dive into it and submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and let Him take the words and utilize those in our lives and to impact us deeply. So um, let me ask you a question. We'll start off with this question today. Where is your joy? Where is your joy? I don't mean where is your source of joy. 
Uh, that's another question, another discussion for another time. But what I mean is, where is your joy? Do you have joy? If you look back in, over this past week and you evaluate each of your days, how would you rate your joy each of those days? So, go back with me. Think about last Wednesday. How many of you can remember your last Wednesday? Anybody? I can remember my last Wednesday. Where was your joy on Wednesday? Did you have joy? Was it absent most or all of the day? You know, we're, we're talking about coming into Christmas, right? And Christmas is a joyful time of the year. And yet many of us uh, will be like the Grinch, uh, and it will be just like another time of year like, like it is any other day. Um, but where is your joy? Think back with me to last Thursday. Where was your joy on Thursday? Most of you guys work on Thursday, last Thursday. Okay, throughout the day, where was your joy? Again, not, where, not who was it being found in, that's a different question, but where was your joy? On your way to church this morning, where was your joy? Particularly if you have multiple kids, where was your joy? Uh, you know, Sarah and I don't get that uh, struggle on Sunday morning, so we drive separately, you know, so maybe that's, there's some wisdom in that, <laughs> you know? Uh, although the kids decided to get up a little earlier this morning, and they were running around the house during my, well, Chapman was running around the house. Hayden's not running yet. Uh, running around the house while I was in the living room in my PJs trying to study. Um, so, but I, you know, it was, my initial thought was to get irritated, because I'm like, I'm trying to study. But then it was just like God's grace just kind of very quickly said, look, you have a son that is running around your house on a Sunday morning getting ready to go to church. And uh, just very quickly, just God was so gracious, snapped me out of that selfishness for those moments. But so, where is it? Um, you know, for some people, when we look around, we don't see joy. Sometimes, when I look around at people in my life, I don't see joy in their life. See little little tidbits of it, right? Like every once in a while, when circumstances are just right. They are the most joyful people in the world, but then every other time, um, it's like, uh, you know, their mama just died, or like cancer's eating them to pieces, and there's no joy. Um, you know, maybe for some people, if you peel back a couple layers, we might be able to see some joy maybe chained in the corner, uh, somewhere dark and deep. Um, but where is your joy? Uh, that's kind of where I want to start us with as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Uh, and let's work through Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Um, let me encourage you uh, to, uh, once again, printer problems uh, in the church office. <laughs> uh, so you have a blank piece of paper. That just means more space for notes. Um, I'll try to help you walk through and, and take good notes as, as we work through this. But uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Where is your joy? He says this. But all this I laid to heart, and we will talk about, let me just stop for just a moment, we will talk about what this, but all this, we will talk about that in just a moment. He says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds, or the, I'm sorry, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, 
both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all, the living, has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. In verse 7 he says, Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I say that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all. For man does not know his time, like the fish that are taken in an evil net, and like the birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's uh, let's pray. Um, We need some help as we work through this text. Father, speak. O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So where is your joy? So with that thought in the back back of your mind, let's begin to work through this. Basically what we have is almost here kind of like a chiastic structure. We talked about a chiastic structure where you have A, B, B, a, you know, where you have a thought that relates to the A thought and the B and the B kind of, and, and that can be have different levels, A, B, C, D, E, F, and so on and so forth. Uh, we don't have a true chiastic structure, structure here, but uh, it's kind of like that. So I want to kind of give you real quick kind of just a breakup of that outline. The first section that we're going to talk through is verses 1 through 6. Uh, so if you break this up into kind of a three points, if you will, we're going to go 1 through 6. And basically in 1 through 6, it's the fact that we all die and the dead have nothing. That's kind of the main thought in verses 1 through 6. We all die and the dead have nothing. What a a glorious thing to ponder this morning. Uh, And the second section is uh, verse 7 through 10. 
and this might tickle our hearts a little better, but enjoy to the fullest the days that God gives you. Enjoy to the fullest the days that God gives you. And the third section would be verses 11 and 12. This is where we kind of relate back to the first point, and that is that life is unpredictable and death can strike us unexpectedly. Again, what a grandiose thought to ponder this morning. I tell you what, if you're not okay with, if uh, you don't have a proper understanding of death, Ecclesiastes will once again this morning challenge us in our understanding and perspective on death. All right. Okay. So that's kind of the three sections, and we're going to work through each one of those kind of systematically. Let me encourage you again as you take notes. Basically, we're just going to rock right through this. It's going to be verse 1, and we're going to talk about it. Verse 1a, talk about it. Verse 1b, talk about it. Verse 2, talk about it. And we're just going to run right through, uh, and we'll try, we'll try to give you guys some thoughts to kind of encapsulate or kind of tie everything together um, for you guys to take this week and study. So the goal, the goal for us today, what is the goal? It's to of the text is to urge us in view of the certainty of death and the unpredictability of life so in view of that it's to urge us to enjoy to the fullest the days that God gives and in the, so in the midst of all of that very confusing crazy stuff that he just said in chapter 9 that, I believe, is the overall goal for us uh, that he is attempting here, or that he is conveying here in chapter 9. So let's think about this for a moment. Many people go day in and day out with very little joy. Would you agree? I would say in my life, uh, many days without joy. Day in, day out, hour in, hour out of joylessness. Why is that? Some of us are, maybe because some of us are anxious about many things. I mean, anxiousness is like the, the joy thief, right? Anxiousness about this, about that is the joy thief. Maybe job security, uh, you know, anxious about those things, gas prices, presidential elections, you know. Uh, maybe health, your health, the child's health. Anxiousness on those things. Um, can steal joy. There's many other things that steal joy. Maybe just the focus on the wrong things can steal joy. Maybe trying to muster up joy. Uh, maybe joy that is that is dependent upon circumstances. Uh, maybe that's a joy that is uh, that is comes and goes, and we live life without much joy. Um, so as as we think about this joy concept, and as we jump right here in the text. The author of Ecclesiastes over the past few weeks has been struggling with the idea that bad and good things happen to bad and good people. So you have the bad person that bad things happen to, right? Like bad things happen to the bad people. But he also says that good things also happen to bad people. And then he gets to good people Righteous people, wise people, and he says that good things happen to them. Okay, that's cool. I can swallow that pill. 
bad things happen to them as well. And so he's struggling with this concept. And with that, that's where we come into verse 9 where he says, And all this, so all of that thought and other uh, thoughts along with that, but primarily that, with all this, in verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1, I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So I think the kind of the first thought for us this morning to kind of package this together is that we need to think about the unpredictability of life biblically. We need to think about the unpredictability of life biblically. And he's going to build this perspective for us over the next six verses. He's been building this perspective, really, in a lot of Ecclesiastes. And we see a lot of overlapping and repetition in the book of Ecclesiastes. And you're going to say right off the bat, hey, we've already talked about enjoying life. Well, we're going to talk about enjoying life in the midst of this unpredictability and certainty of death. And he's going to have a little bit of a different feel to it than he has so far in the book of Ecclesiastes. So be looking for that different feel about this joy in the midst of these things. So verse, verse 1, he says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So he starts off with, so he's struggling with this, with this you know, bad and good things happening to bad and good people. There is no basically difference, he is saying. But he says here in verse 1 that no matter what happens, though, it's all in the hand of God. So here's the wise man, Kohelet, the preacher, Ecclesiastes. He says it's all in the hand of God. I mean, here, here and it, as we've worked through Ecclesiastes, we've seen him encounter the negatives of outrageous fortune. We've seen him encounter the negatives of outrageous pleasure. Um, we've seen him... Uh, look at the idea of suffering and oppression and injustice. But here he takes comfort in the fact that God is in control and that God cares for his people. God is in control and God cares for it. It is all in his hands. Those who are righteous and wise, their persons, actions, lives, deeds, are at the disposal of, the care of, and under the provision of God. That they are all in His hands. So, in the midst of this struggle, and in the midst of this unpredictability that we're going to talk about in the next, it is all in God's hands. So, when we talk about, just a quick connection point, we talk about all we have is Christ, that's all we have. And we have to run back to that. And here we see that good and bad happen to both good and people. And the only thing we have is that we are in God's hands. And that's all we have. But we continue to run other places. Keep that in the back of your mind. So he takes comfort in this. This makes all the difference. I mean, I think this really changes the way you view the world. 
I hope Ecclesiastes has changed the way you view the world, period. But we get to this point, and once again, this changes the way we view the world. But he does. what's interesting, he doesn't stop there. As you guys know, the verse goes on. The problem is that the teacher continues, and he says in the latter half of verse 1, whatever is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. What in the world is he saying? Um, he's saying that the wise do not know whether what they experience is a result of God's love, God's favor, or God's hate, or God's anger. That was perfect timing. <laughs> Give me a hard time. Da, da, da. Um, he said, you, you, the, for the wise man, we do not know whether this what we experience is the results of... I mean, think about it. So in, in 8.14, sometimes we are treated terribly, right? So really bad things happen to, quote, good people. Sometimes we die young, 7.15. Basically, the idea here that I believe he's trying to communicate is that none of us know what all life holds because there are many uncertainties. There are many uncertainties. We do not know what life has around the corner. No one can tell what the future will bring. It's kind of the idea here. Righteousness and wisdom have no guarantee of leading to a blissful life. We got that? Righteousness and wisdom have no guarantee of leading to a blissful life. Now, Joel Osteen says, don't just accept whatever comes your way in life. You were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. And uh, Kohelet says that we're all born to die. Um, and that we, whether we are righteous people or bad people, that good and bad both comes our way. And we have no control over the future. We'll dig into that more as we go. So now, what happens after this verse 1, so he kind of sets the stage that there's this uncertainty of life. There's this uncertainty of the future. And now what he's going to do is he's going to give us a series of contrasts of why our experiences in life, or examples of of our experiences in life um, not matching up or not making sense. Um, so in verse 2, he says this, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is, is as he who shuns an oath. So what we have here is that God cares for the wise, but even they still face the bruising realities of life in a fallen world. So those who are righteous, those who are found in Christ, still face the same bruising realities that this life feeds, that this life has. Uh, I mean, this is seen at very least, in the ultimate end of each of us, and that is death, the, the equalizer, right? 
So he's saying in this book, everyone faces death. It's a universal evil. It is the same for all. The righteous die just like the sinners die. The righteous, the wicked, the good man, the evil man, the clean, the unclean. They all die. Well, why is he doing this? Why is he... Is he Okay, yeah, we know this. You've said this a hundred times. Why is he doing this? I think what he's doing is he's forcing the reality of universal death on us and saying you've got to have an answer for that. You have to have an answer for this universal reality of death. And what is that answer? So in the face of universal death, you have to have an answer for the meaning in life that makes sense. We've talked about this before. So, if there is no God, there is no, we have to ask the question then, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose? Because we all, as Ecclesiastes says, and, and as just reality would proclaim, we all end up dust eventually. So, if that's it, then why not get there sooner? Why suffer the realities of this, of this life? The pain, the toil, that relationships, that job, that physical weaknesses and physical decay, all of that causes. Why not just get there quicker? If there is no purpose beyond the dust to which we will return eventually. So he says, you have to have an answer for, the ult- for this universal reality of death. It's interesting if you study some of the religions around Israel during this time um, and how they dealt with afterlife. Some of them did it through denial, some through mythology. Um, some of them thought that the afterlife was another world in which they oftentimes had contact with. Um, so constant belief in ghosts and spirits. Uh, if you study like the Egyptians and how they would bury their pharaohs, but we've talked about this a little bit, how they would bury uh, like their treasures with them. You know, they were still there, you know, 500 years later or thousand, whatever, when, when they would be robbed. But uh, I didn't realize this, but in, in some research, they'd actually even buried some of their servants and, and such alive with them so that they could take them into the afterlife with them. So they were alive buried, died, so that they could take them with them. Um, obviously that seems morbid to us, but this was their belief that this was what, how we took this from here into this afterlife. Um, and you say, but where is the afterlife in Ecclesiastes? Where is the afterlife? Because he just says that we all end up in death, and that's kind of where he leaves it off at. Um, what I think he's doing, I think it's clear here, is that, you, I mean, first of all, you're not going to find much afterlife in Ecclesiastes. He just does not refer to the afterlife in Ecclesiastes. Um, but it's not because the afterlife is absent in the Old Testament. But I think what you have here is in his seeking of wisdom and his display of wisdom and observation, he sees in the world around him this sentim- uh, sentimental view, this uh, mythologizing uh, culture of the afterlife where there is kind of this 
softer view of the reality of death where, okay, well, they go into this place and we can communicate to them and we can send gifts with them. And, and, and so there's kind of this softer view of the reality of death. And I think what he is bringing us back to is the reality that death is the equalizer, that death uh, is ultimately a punishment and is a cruelty and an evil. Death is an evil at its core. Death came into the world, why? As a result of man's sin. Death is an evil. So, I think that's what he's doing. He's bringing, he's going, we have this soft pansy view of death around us. And this is the reality. It's a great evil. So then he goes on again in verse 3. This is an evil. That's what I've just got done saying. So this is an evil. What's he referring to? He's referring to this equalizer. The fact that they all will return to dust. He says this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madnesses in their hearts. Alright, let's go back to the beginning of that. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Uh, Forrest Gump, in his monologue over Jenna's grave, says that dying <laughs> says that dying is just a part of living. But Kohelet says that it is the great enemy. It is. Death is a great enemy and will capture every person. I mean, can, can you see some of his outrage in the text? I mean, we have a poor time, I think, seeing this but, and, and, and describing this. But I mean, he says this, this death, this is an evil. All that is done under the sun, the same event that happens to all, this is evil. You know, even today, many people still try to mythologize and whisper sweet thoughts of death to us. Mary Baker Eddy, anybody familiar with who she is? Founder of Christian Science. She said, To infinite, ever-present love, all is love, and there is no error, no sin, sickness, nor death. Um, I'm not trying to be mean, but she was smoking something. Because um, we all die, and death is not quite that pleasant. Um, I, I'm not picking on other faiths, just trying to paint the picture here. The, the Baha'i faith teaches that we are immortal spiritual beings temporarily inhabiting mortal physical bodies when through death we cast off the limitations of this world and enter the realm of the spirit. We are in reality undergoing the equivalent of birth in our current state. For although we leave this world behind, we enter into a world of infinitely greater potential. So this life is simply a Kind of like a birth. It's a shedding of the shell that we have. Um, and these are not my words, but Kohelet says that this death is an evil. I mean, to this, the preacher says it is better to live as a dog than a dead lion. So death is not just a natural process. It's a curse for moral rebellion. It's a punishment for sin. That is death. 
This is why Christ, through his death, died in our place to remove the sting of the death for all who would trust in him. You see, and this, this is part, again, another kind of side note or comment. It's texts like this that help us, bring us back to the reality of death so that we understand more fully the reality of Christ's death and the payment paid for our death and what he did in place of that, or for us, and what happened. And this brings this picture into much clearer view, although the text alone stands uh, as valuable uh, and applicational in our life, even apart from its later application. So, <clears throat> going on in verse 4. He says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. So the living have a hope that they may still experience some of the joy that the teacher continually advocates. So he's saying that the, the one who is alive still has the potential to enjoy life that he's referring to. Um, he then uses a proverb here. You guys catch the proverb? What's the proverb? What? Yeah, yeah, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. So, I mean, so for us, our, our dogs, like, this totally messes up. Because, like, some of us, our dogs are like our kids, you know? Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because, well, I, I, I'm on this end of the, of the spectrum where we had dogs, they were our kids, and then now they're like the abused stepchildren, you know, because Chap and, and Hayden have very much taken their place. I uh, sometimes feel sorry for them until they pee on my floor, then I don't feel sorry any longer. Um, of course, Chap will do the same thing, right, you know? No, no joke. You know, Sarah thinks it's cute when he runs around the house naked, you know, and that's, that's fine. Y you allowed him, you clean it up, Okay. Uh, and I don't want him sniffing the same spot and going back to it, you know. So, uh, <laughs> all right. So for, for here, a dog. A dog during this time period did not cost $800, you know, uh, or $2,000. A dog during this time period was a scavenger, was unclean and despised. We might relate this to a, what do you think we could relate this to today? A dog in Haiti? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the people don't have a whole lot of food, the dog ain't going to have a whole lot of food. The dog is food. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> what else? What about in our, our context here? What would we relate to this kind of animal? Like a raccoon? Like a raccoon? Yeah. Or a, a possum? Possum? A little brother? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, or a rat? Right? Uh, have you ever just thought about an apostle? Sorry, it's side trend. Like, they like play dead, right? I mean, that's what apostles do, right? They play dead. So here's a big car coming. I'm going to play dead. Uh, and, you know, and then his reality comes true. Uh, don't... Uh, or his, what he is imagining becomes reality. That's what I meant to say. Uh, anyways. 
So he says here that a living dog is better than a dead lion. How about a lion? How do you think a lion was viewed during this day? What? Powerful? What else? Exotic. I mean, you know, they didn't have like big rifles to go hunt lions with, right? I mean, these were powerful animals. Um, I mean, they might be captured them like with a group of them together going after this thing. But I mean, so this lion is viewed as a majestic, powerful, privileged king of the jungle, of the African safari, or whatever the case. Uh, and he says that it is better to be a living dog, a rat, a possum, a raccoon, than it is to be the king of the wilderness, to be the privileged, wealthy, dead king. Kohalat hmm. says that the living have hope, for a living scavenger dog is better than a dead lion. So even a dog's life, he is saying basically here, even a dog's life is better than death. Again, trying to, I think he's painting for us this stark reality and a contrast against the modern culture during his time of what death was. For verse 5, he says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So the living here have self-aware, have awareness, have conscientiousness. Have, they know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Or consciousness, that's what I meant to say. The dead, their past accomplishments are forgotten by those who live later. And basically he says, and, and we've talked about this earlier on in Ecclesiastes, the dead, they, they die and then they are soon forgotten. Like it's as if they never lived. Again, I asked the question, a number of weeks ago, how many of you know your great-great-great-great-grandpa? Maybe, like, what's the furthest, uh, besides you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> how many of you know three greats? Great-great-great. Okay, how many know more about him than his name? Okay. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So how many years out? All right, so how about great, 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 four? Okay. And more about him than his name? He lived in Texas. Okay. Well, more than his name and his geographical location. He was a rancher. Okay, okay, okay. So, I mean, how many years? Someone add that up real quick. How many years are we out and then approximately? What? How many years ago do you think that, how, when did he die? 1888. Okay, so we're 130 years, 125 years, something like that. We're 125 years, and you think about eternity, or you don't even think about eternity. Think about the existence of the earth, and of, how about, how about, let's narrow it down, mankind, and 125 years, and the dude's already been forgotten. And, and most people aren't working as hard as you are to dig up the bones of 
dead people, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so for most people, it's like maybe 60 years, right? But for most people, you know, it's 60 years and you are forgotten. And he says that the dead know nothing and they have no reward for the, rem- for the memory of them is forgotten. I mean, this is a reality. This is a reality for us. I mean, yes, we want to leave a legacy. We want to, to, to thrust our kids and, 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 and other people into a, uh, this change that could go on. But you, as a person, will most likely be forgotten. Um, I mean, yeah, Moses, he's, he's made it a long time. Um, uh, Abraham's made it a pretty long time. But most people don't get that privilege. Moving on, verse 6. It says, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. I think this is probably one of the starkest biblical description, descriptions of the dead that we have. They are done, no more rewards, soon forgotten, their passions perished, no more portion in life. They are done. It's gone. Again, this reality of death. Um, how do you know who James Boswell is? James Boswell. No, James Boswell. How do you know who Samuel Johnson? Samuel Johnson. Okay. So James Boswell. I, I figured our literature English major would know James Boswell, but uh, I don't know that much about him. So I don't want to fool anybody. But uh, I know he's he's said to be one of the greatest biographers, or who has written about. He wrote the biography on Samuel Johnson. Uh, and uh, if you read some of it, like just his descriptions and how he encaptured Samuel Johnson is very, uh, um, well, I mean, it's, it's very amazing how he was able to capture the life of Samuel Johnson. Well, in a journal, as him and Johnson traveled around Scotland, the highlands of Scotland and, and the western islands of Scotland, um, as he traveled in his journal, he wrote these words. He says, No wise man will be contended to die if he thinks he goes into a state of punishment. Nay, no wise man will be contended to die if he thinks that he falls into annihilation. For however unhappy a man's existence may be, he would rather have it than not exist at all. No, there is no rational principle by which a man can die contented but by a trust in the mercy of God through the merits of Jesus Christ. Um, I think what we have is a, a truth um, here in Ecclesiastes and the reality check on death. And I think Ecclesiastes 9 seeks to open us up to this reality of death. Um, that we have a joy for this time that we will miss out on dishonoring God in the process if we are too focused on other things and even focused on the future. We'll miss out on, and in the process of missing out on this joy, we even dishonor God in the process. Let me give you another thought. We are way too quick to marry our Christian views of death to pagan views of death. Okay, So let's talk about this for just a moment. So we are right to have hope in the afterlife, right? Because we have life with Christ, and we've talked about that's a whole other topic for another time. But let me read to you this quote by a pastor 
his last name's Duncan, uh, Ligon Duncan. He says, we are wrong to diminish the moral dimension of death. We are wrong to see death as simply a device that morally transforms everyone. Death is not the transformer, it is the curse. God is the transformer. His grace transforms. Death itself is judgment apart from that grace. Um, and so death, we, I think, need to view it biblically. It is not just this lofty idea that will eventually get to us or eventually gets to people. It is a reality, and it's a reality that serves a purpose. And it's evil, he says. So, moving on in this text to verse 7. So that kind of wraps up to view. So we need to think about basically the twists and turns of this life biblically. Looking at life biblically. The unpredictability of death, or the unpredictability of life and its events, and the, unpre- and the inevitability of death. So we cannot predict what will happen, yet understand it's all in God's care. And we need to understand and accept the full reality of death and not a pagan sentimental idea of it. We can't just view death as just this light, soft idea. So against this dark background, all right? So it's this, this background that he's just painted. Against that, we come to verse 7. And in verse 7 he says, Go eat your bread with joy. So here, in light of all that I've just said, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So the next kind of big thought I would give you uh, to, to kind of wrap your mind around this is in response to the unpredictability of this life, we should enjoy to the fullest the days God gives us. In response to the unpredictability of this life, or with that in the backdrop, however you want to word that, we should enjoy to the fullest the days God gives us. So let's read verse 7 again. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So, here's the deal. We've already been encouraged in Ecclesiastes to enjoy life, right? Right? Where have we seen that at? What else has he said? Or where has he said it? What chapters? What chapters has he said to enjoy life? Where at? It's like Bible drill. Speed drills here. What? 8.15? And 8.15 he says... Go ahead, read it. Mm-hmm. 7.14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Anybody else? What, what, what's the reference? 224. 224. 
Right, so we've already seen a clear command to enjoy life. What we have here, though, um, is an urgency to enjoy life. We have an urgency. Basically, we cannot waste a day. So if death could happen at any time, and it will happen for sure, and life is unpredictable, so we do not know what tomorrow holds, he says, enjoy it today. Go, eat, drink, enjoy. The word go here is kind of like a wake-up call. There is no time to waste. Stop your complaining. Stop nursing your anger. Stop brooding about your problems. Get over your anxiety. Go. Enjoy today. Now, obviously, Scripture and other places helps us deal with how do we move through those things. But he's just saying at this point, he's not giving commentary on how to deal with your anger. He's just saying, go, enjoy today. Enjoy the food, enjoy the bread. Eat your bread with enjoyment. Don't rush through your meals. Don't slop your food in like a hog. God has made us not only to need food in order to live, but also to enjoy food. Now, I think we can extend this beyond food and drink and your wife and such as far as its application, but he literally is meaning eat your food with enjoyment. Why? Like, what's the big deal about food? What's the big deal about food? What are you guys... It's awesome. I, yes, 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 yes. Yesterday, I, went, I took Chapman for the second time to Jeet, India. Uh, and it's one of those ones when Sarah wants to go out to eat, I'm, like, I'm always like, ooh, Jeet, India, because I know like, most times she's going to say no. Uh, so yesterday, she's like, it sounds good. I'm like, oh, yes. I wasn't even really that hungry for it, but I knew if I didn't take it, I wasn't going to get it like, for a long time. Uh, so it's when you, you get it while it gets hot. So, uh, so, so it took chaff. And, and Chap's eating this. <laughs> right. So Chap's just, just munching down this chicken tiki masala, right? Like, dude, that's good stuff, right? I mean, most people are like, ugh, Indian, ugh. Yeah, Chap and Levi liked it too, man. So, like, that's good. So, so, but what's the big deal other than it tasting good? Other than that, what's the big deal about food? What's the big deal? Think, think through some OT history, Old Testament history. History. What's the big deal about food? Come on. I ain't the dentist. I ain't pulling teeth. <laughs> Come on. It's a green light question for those of you who know what that means. Jesus is the big deal about food. Yes. Very good, Greg. Okay, okay, absolutely. 20 plus feasts in the Old Testament. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think these are all great answers. I mean, there, there's a, there's a, do what? All of them are right. <laughs> They're all right. All of the above, there you go. 
except for Jesus. That's not the answer. <laughs> it's because of Jesus we can enjoy bacon. Well, well done. Well done. Well done. I, I learned the art from Rusty and his family of making bacon and snacking on it all week. That's probably not good for my heart. <laughs> No joke, I was over there helping him move something, and he comes walking, at his parents' house, he comes walking through with, I'm like, ooh, it looks like beef jerky. Oh, no, it was bacon. I'm like, <laughs> and then I was, all right, we're on a terrible rabbit, tra- rabbit trail, but I, a deer trail. Uh, we, we're down at, I was down at Walgreens getting something or whatever here is on the corner, and I, oh, I, like, I love, I'm a beef jerky dude, like, that's my thing, and uh I uh, walked by the thing, and you always had like turkey jerky and beef jerky, and they had bacon jerky. Uh, and, I, and I'm like, I can make that at home. It's called a skillet and bacon. Uh, but uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, all right, moving on. He says, go, eat, wake up, enjoy your food. He says, drink your wine with a merry heart. And God has also provided a rich variety of drinks that most that most Baptists don't ever get to enjoy. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the preachers I used to listen to a lot, Perry Noble, would say, you know, and all you Presbyterians, you know what he's talking about here, and the Baptists have no clue. <laughs> In Israel, wine was a favorite. All right, let's move on. So the pagan equivalent slogan of this is let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die right right let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die yeah right uh i would i would say in light of kohelet's words here uh that is quite shallow and selfish listen to what kohelet says in verse seven at the end he says go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Long ago, God approved our enjoyment of food and drink. I mean, think of, think of creation. He not only provided us with the necessities to live, but an abundance of variety as well. You see that? Think about food. Even even at that point in creation, I mean, the variety of food and even for them, just plants, the variety of plants and vegetation and food in that context. And think about the variety of us today. Of course, you know, Twinkies, probably not bad that they are gone now. Uh, you might see our ob- obesity rate in America go down a little bit. They're getting a bailout. Ba- are they getting a bailout? Okay. Well, we need our Twinkies, I guess. No comment. Moving on. Psalm 104.15. 104.15 in the book of Psalms says, And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. I think the point here, guys, is at least in part, is that God is honored and pleased when we enjoy His provisions. And we don't have to super spiritualize everything either. Like, he literally gave us food to enjoy. 
And you can see where our busy lives prohibit us from honoring God at this point, right? So always fast food, always, you know, just, and, and I like all that garbage too, but like, the point here is to enjoy it. You know, uh, there's two reasons I'm typically the last person eating at the table. One is because I'm probably talking, okay, and that's probably most of the reason. Uh, second reason is because I really, particularly if it's good food, I, I really like to enjoy each bite, right? You know, toss it back and forth in the mouth, you know, somersault it with the tongue, you know, and like just enjoying. I'm just kidding. Right? But you know what I'm saying, right? Like anybody else here, like, like how many of you, you get something good and you're like, ah, and then you, how many of you are that? Yeah. How many of you have got something good and you're like, oh, mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's why sushi is so appealing to me. Because you just get a little bite at a time and the flavor is so good. Right? The last time I made sushi, Chapman ate a roll and a piece of raw salmon and avocado. And he loved it. Dipped in soy sauce. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, one bite at a time. Of course, for him, oh, that little bite's like, you know, chipmunk. So, all right, moving on. So I think God, the point is God is honored and pleased when we enjoy his provisions. Um, think about how you might miss out on this each day without realizing it. Think about that. How do you miss out on that? All right, moving on. Verse 8, he says, Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. So, all right, let's think about this. So in a hot climate, white garments would reflect the heat of the sun, and oil kept the skin from drying out. But I don't think that's his point here. His point here is that white garments and oil are also a symbol of joy in the Old Testament. A symbol of joy. As opposed to what? Sackcloth and ashes. I mean, ashes, I mean, what's that do to the skin? I mean, it dries, dries up. Sackcloth is dark. Right, so, so white garment, oil on the face. This is when people were joyful, this is what they did. They wore white garments and put, on, put oil on their head. Um, going on verse 9, it says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Don't you just love his? Enjoy your wife all of your vain life. I just love it. That he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Uh, one commentator, uh, I read this past week, says this. He says, there has always been within the Christian tradition a tendency that understands true spirituality as involving the shunning of created things rather than the enjoyment of these things and thankfulness to God who has blessed us with them. And the teacher helps us see that the latter is true spirituality. Enjoying God's good gifts is true spirituality. Um, so, moving on in the interest of time, verse 10. It says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. <laughs> Again, I just love his language. Sheol is basically the abode of the dead, <laughs> Uh, he simply, simply reminds us that death awaits, once again. For there, no, there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. All the more reason to work 
with your might, whatever you find your hands doing. Um, if you have a chance to do something, do it now. It's kind of the feel here. You never know about tomorrow. Now, most of us are thinking, oh, dude, I want to go skydiving. I went skydiving. I went, right? I'm surprised Brian didn't pick that one up. Take it over, brother. <laughs> you guys know what song I'm talking about? I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. <laughs> right. I don't not like country, but the words just stick in my head. not man oh <laughs> all right so the song if you don't have it, go look it up i don't know who sang it don't know the title of it okay uh but that's the seriously country do they play the same song over and kind of like k-love they do play it over and over and over all right um all right so um my, my point is this when when we think about living life to the fullest day we oftentimes think about like, oh, well, there's that skydiving, that event that I've always wanted to do. And I don't think that that's his point. I think his point is to enjoy where God's put you. Enjoy the toil that God has given you. Enjoy the food that God has provided for you. So for here, the teacher tells us that hard work is a part of the joy of living. We were created to work. So purposeful work should give us satisfaction and joy. So in view, moving on to our last point, so in view of certain death and the unpredictability of life, he says to eat your bread with enjoyment, drink your wine with a merry heart, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And kind of the last big thought for us today is we must live reminded that life is unpredictable and death is unexpected. Let's live reminded that life is unpredictable and death is unexpected. All right, so here's kind of where we kind of repeat the first main thought, but with a little bit of a different angle. Verse 11, he says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So, human life is unpredictable. That's what he's saying. Human life is unpredictable. Think about physical prowess. So those who are physically got it, right? We would expect a race to be won by the swift, would we not? Unless they're taking drugs, but hey, we would expect the race to be won by the swift. We would expect the battle to be won by the strong. I mean, think about Goliath. What happened in that situation? Think about intellectual superiority. One would think that teachers would have livelihood, a.k.a. bread. One would expect the intelligent to have riches. And the question is, why do we see so many exceptions to that? And that's what he's getting at. Verse 11, again, I saw it under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them to them all. That's the problem. Time and chance. The problem, anyways, in what answers the exceptions. We have already seen that we cannot control the times. We also cannot control the accidents. The chance. We cannot control those. 
It's like driving down the road. I mean, the car is about to hit you. How many of you have control over that car that hit you from the side that you had no clue it was coming? Anybody? Yeah. God does, but you don't. Verse, um, I mean, think about, uh, we, I mean, so the point is, I think his point here is, we're not in complete control of our destiny. Accidents can cause us to fall short of our goals. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So, I mean, I mean, come on. So let's think about the American dream, right? The American dream. You can be anything you want to be. Really? <laughs> I mean, is that what Kohelet says here? <laughs> you can be anything you want to be. All right. We'll move on. You guys get where that goes. Life is unpredictable. Verse 12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So here's the deal. Not only is life unpredictable, but death, death can be sudden. We don't know the time of death. So fish are taking, taken in an evil net. So I mean, think about fish, uh, fishermen, round nets would cast, you know, for a moment the nets in the air. Anybody ever thrown a cast net? That is really hard and takes quite a bit of talent. You know, you know I, I've done that a few times. My, the supposed to be 10 foot spread on my cast net was like two foot. I never caught anything. Uh, no, I'm sorry, I did. I caught a couple. <laughs> supposed to catch like schools of fish. Um, yeah, so I mean, see these guys do these big, huge ones. You know, <laughs> you know catch all of you. you know. um, so the idea here is that that net is. If you think about a cast net, think about how it's it's suspended in air. If you've ever seen this, go YouTube it. There's lots of videos. You, the the net's kind of suspended, and then all of a sudden it goes, and it drops on the fish. That's kind of the idea here. Is that that the 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 fish are swimming, and then all of a sudden the net is there. And that's the idea of death. That death, just all of a sudden, it will be there and facing us head on. Same thing with the birds that are caught in a snare. So the, the bird, a snare, kind of like a, a noose where, you know, it, it's there and, and tied to the ground or to a branch and all of a sudden the birds are walking around just doing their own thing and all of a sudden they realize that their head is in a snare and death is upon them. Like both of these situations, calamity will suddenly fall upon us. All of a sudden, death can overtake us. Uh, we may not suspect a thing. And I think about even most recently in the life of, of my family, my, my dad's dad. Um, I mean, he's as healthy as healthy can be. And then just over, it was like overnight, uh, dementia and Alzheimer's kind of stuff starts setting. And they don't know exactly what else going on at this point, but it was just... It was like overnight, just set in. So, let's close in a few moments. This is with the with the certainty of death in view, and also its suddenness and unexpectedness. The teacher urges us all the more to enjoy the life that God has given us. We see here two big reminders, two big realities, and then we should enjoy this life. 
So because we all die, we should enjoy this life. Jesus himself enjoyed eating and drinking. On several occasions, Jesus provided bread for the masses to enjoy. Jesus even turned water into wine. Take that, Baptist. All right. uh, Jesus teaches us not to worry about food and drink. Um, Jesus, he says, worry kills any enjoyment. Do not be anxious for tomorrow, right? So since food and drinks are gifts from God, I think we, the, the point is we should enjoy them. Uh, if we do not enjoy the gifts, then we dishonor the giver. I mean, think about that. You give the toy to your child for Christmas, and it's, oh, and then on to the next thing, right? I mean, think about that. I mean, God has gifted us with food and drink and this life to enjoy. So not only should we enjoy our food, but also our spouse, and finally, we also must enjoy the work that God's given us and to do it with might. Um, teacher tells us to work heartily because there is no work in Sheol. I mean, Jesus says something similar, and John 9, 4, he says, We must work for the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Um, Paul adds in Colossians three twenty three, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So because Jesus lived and died and rose again. Our enslavement to sin has been broken, right? Our enslavement to sin has been broken. We can live as God intended in the beginning, enjoying our food and drink, enjoying life with our spouse, enjoying our work. And Paul says what in 1 Corinthians? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Unfortunately, we so often waste away our days with meaningless stuff. So we miss out on the joy in exchange for meaningless stuff like grudges, petty arguments, frustrations, anger, worries, material acquisition. We spend our lives focused on these things and missing out on the opportunity to enjoy what God has given us. So I go back to the same question I asked you at the beginning, where is your joy? Are you enjoying what God has given you today? When you leave this place, will you enjoy what God has given you the rest of the day? Because this is not a seasonal thing, right? Like, Ecclesiastes did not have the birth of Jesus in mind as he was writing this text. In fact, I think it was quite absent from his thoughts. Do you enjoy? Will you enjoy today? Um, how would you live if death you knew was two months away? Huh? How would you live? What would you change? Now, for some of us, it would be, we, well, I'm just going to have a free-for-all, right? Like, just play, right? But Ecclesiastes has already set that bookend for us, right? There's wisdom. Um. So, where is your joy? And think about that. I mean, even as we go into Christmas, we go into this time where there's all kinds of distractions and all this. Where's your joy? Do your kids see your joy? Does your spouse get to live with you and your joy? 
Do they? Or do they get to hear you're complaining all the time? Right? Do they get to live with your joy? You want to live with their joy, right? You want to live with a wife that's joyful and a husband that's joyful, right? All right. Well, let's, uh, I want to encourage you guys to, uh, to do that. So um, let's, uh, let's pray, and uh, we'll be dismissed. It's been good morning. Father, uh, thank you for this day. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your kindness. Father, thank you for your concern that we would have joy. Father, you could have structured this life and created it in such a way that we would just be robots or we would just be people that were here to slave away at some fruitless, some lack of satisfaction, lack of purpose kind of jobs and work and toil. But yet, Father, you have purposefully, in your wisdom, structured life and built life and created life in such a way that we could experience joy. And so, Father, as we go throughout these days, we must understand that you are the one who grants the work and the toil and the relationships and the food and drink, that you're the one that grants those as opportunities to enjoy, and you're also the one who grants the ability to enjoy those things. And so as we enjoy these things, let us in those moments, remember that it's you who has given us the things to enjoy and given us the ability to enjoy them. So, Father, um, thank you for that. And, Father, I just pray that you would bless us in these days of this coming week as we begin this season to remember the birth of your Son. Father, that we would see the joy brought forth to this earth through the birth of Him. And Father, uh, we thank You. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Blessings.